0: Welcome, dear readers. You're listening to Time to Read, a Winnipeg Public Library podcast book club. We're recording today from the frigid Carol Shields Auditorium at Millennium Library in Winnipeg, which is within Treaty 1 Territory, the traditional lands of the Anishinaabe, Innu and Dakota peoples, and in the national homeland of the Red River Métis. Our drinking water comes from Shoal Lake 41st Nation in Treaty 3 Territory. In this episode, we will be discussing French Exit by Patrick DeWitt. I'm Dennis from the Idea Mill, and if I'm going to be reincarnated as a mammal, a cat would be the way to go. Across the table from me is...
1: Uh, I'm Toby, I'm an outreach librarian based out of here at Millennium Library, and I too have been driven to insomnia by the violence of my muse. And across the table from me is...
2: Hi, I'm Trevor, the branch head at the Louis Riel Library, and I'm more familiar with the reverse French accent, which is where you announce to everybody you're going to leave and then you stay around for another hour at the party, and (laughs) and Also, uh, a quick note, uh, do not uh, Google image search reverse French exit.
0: dear reader we wouldn't do this without you we'd love to hear from you why not slip a party invitation under our door that also tells us what you think of the books we're reading don't worry you'll be among friends you can find our email address and all our social media outlets by going to wpl-podcast.winnipeg.ca and scrolling to the bottom of the page hang around till the end of the episode to enjoy our favorite segment nerd words for word nerds plus we'll be talking about our new year's reading resolutions even if we're a bit later than usual for that before we dig in, let's do a quick check-in with the panel. How are you guys doing? Freezing.
1: Yeah, it's very cold in here.
0: Yeah, the, there's been a problem with the boiler system in the building, so we, some
2: of the less used rooms are a little cooler than normal. I will say this, I was in this very room last week for a meeting, and it was the most alert I've ever been for a meeting. <laughs> uh, I was uh, you know, paying attention, I was interacting, uh, so I mean, it was great. We should keep the room cold more
0: often. So we did want to acknowledge we missed an episode for the first time in our five plus years recording a podcast. The thing that happened was my dad died. And so we skipped the month uh, so that I could spend time with family. So this episode is essentially going to be what we would have recorded last month. And we hope that you had plenty of time to read the book this time.
1: And can we dedicate this episode to the memory of your dad?
0: Uh, I don't think he would have read this. (laughs) Okay, fair enough. (laughs) Dead was a lot of things, but a uh, reader of uh, farce uh, and satire, probably not. Okay. We can dedicate this one to me if you like. This episode <laughs> is dedicated to Trevor. Oh, yeah. Yeah. So Toby's going to tell us about the author, after which Trevor will give us a summary of the book.
1: Okay, Patrick DeWitt. He was born in Sydney, which is on Vancouver Island, on March 6th, 1975. He is the second of three brothers and spent his childhood moving back and forth across the west coast of North America. He describes his father, a self-employed carpenter, as one of those people who never really recovered from having read Jack Kerouac's On the Road. (laughs) Uh, DeWitt credits his father with instilling in him an interest in literature. After work, his father would come home and read on the couch. DeWitt never did particularly well in school. Of his teachers, he says, they were embittered and disenchanted individuals who weren't interested in the fact that I was reading books none of the other students were reading. As a teenager, he read Tortilla Flat by John Steinbeck and suddenly realized that Steinbeck had used his imagination and not his own life in writing it. About this, he says, I was disappointed by the thought that most novels were largely invention. But then I started writing, and the epiphany took on a rosy glow because it meant I could speak of anything under the sun." He was also very inspired by Last Exit to Brooklyn and Requiem for a Dream by Hubert Selby Jr., He moved to L.A. and worked in a bar while writing on the side. One night, he asked a customer he knew to look at a manuscript. Uh, This man was a screenwriter and passed it on to another person who was a musician who had once been in a band with someone who was now a literary agent. Thanks to these connections, his first novel, Ablutions, was published in 2009, but his luck ran out there. Uh, The novel was not very successful, despite good reviews and being a New York Times editor's choice. It wasn't even published in Canada until after his second novel came out. His second book, which was The Sisters Brothers, found much more success. It was shortlisted for The Booker, The Giller, The Rogers Writers Trust Fiction Prize, and the Governor General's Award, and it won the latter two. It was also adopted into a film of the same name. His third novel, Under Major Domo Minor, was longlisted for The Giller. His fourth novel, French Exit, was also a finalist for The Giller and also became a film film. His most recent book is The Librarianist, which was published last year. Uh, he is currently working on another novel, as well as a television show, which takes place on an island in Western Canada, and is about sloppy criminals, kleptomaniac nuns, runaway speedboats and puppies, and freedom of the press. And he lives in Portland. Mm-hmm. There you go.
2: This is what, uh, for those who uh, maybe have not read French Exit, this is the summary of the, of the novel that we will be discussing. We have Frances Price, she's a 65-year-old wealthy widow, and her adult son, Malcolm Price, and they live together in New York City. When her financial planner reveals that she is completely insolvent, something he's been warning her about for the better part of a decade, Frances illegally sells everything that she owns and decides to take her childhood friend, Joan, up on the offer to live in Joan's apartment in Paris. So mother and son, along with their cat, Small Frank, they take a cruise ship to Paris, and on board they meet a medium named Madeline, who tells them that Small Frank is inhabited by the spirit of Francis's deceased husband, Frank, something both she and Malcolm were already aware of. Francis and Malcolm arrive in Paris and they sort of live a life of misery and near isolation. Francis begins to spend the remaining money lavishly, developing a plan to fix their circumstances she informs Small Frank of her plan, and he runs away. So in order to locate Small Frank, Francis has a friend hire an investigator to locate Madeline. Madeline is able to make contact with Small Frank, who informs Malcolm and then everyone else that Francis intended to kill him, and he has no intention of returning to her. Francis spends the rest of that week entertaining the various guests and friends she's made in Paris, including Joan, who shows up, believing that Francis intends to kill herself, and Malcolm's ex-fiancee, Susan, who is still in love with Malcolm and comes to Paris to be with him. And eventually, after spending the last of her money and reconciling somewhat with Susan, Francis ends her life. So how'd you guys find it?
1: Do we need to add a spoiler to uh, to that? I guess we we always talk, about we don't always do spoilers. So,
0: Oh, yeah. Definitely yeah. spoilers. I guess we should also say content warning. This book mentions suicide. And so that may come up further in the discussion, too. Yes.
1: I love this book. I love this book. The first time I read it, I loved it the second time I read it. I think it's probably the funniest fiction book I've ever read. I just, I really, that absurd quirky humor just really does it for me i think it is maybe a little lacking in plot like sometimes it does feel like just an assortment of quirky characters and snappy dialogue but it's it's just so funny that i don't care like i don't care that it's just quirky characters and snappy dialogue
0: have you read P.G. Wodehouse or not. Terry no. Pratchett? No. Those are your... Okay. <laughs> I had to stop reading Terry Pratchett on the bus because I kept laughing out loud.
1: Oh, okay. Yeah.
2: Just
0: curious. <laughs>
2: <laughs> well, I mean, it's no question uh, DeWitt is a talented, uh, gifted writer and a humorist, but why doesn't he use his powers for good instead of evil? That's what I have to say. <laughs> <laughs> you're gonna have to dive what? in on that one yeah. well okay this is the thing this is the third patrick dewitt book i've read sisters <laughs> brothers librarianist and this one and i would say this one falls right in the middle i would say in that i did not like sisters brothers at all i quite loved the uh librarianist and then uh, this this one you know i have to acknowledge that sometimes books aren't what i want them to be but that doesn't make them bad books. Yeah, mm-hmm. uh, So I can recognize that it is a, it's a good book. It's a well-written book. The fact that it just kind of fell flat for me, I feel like is, is a failure on my part. I enjoyed the writing style. I laughed out loud. Like you say, Toby, it's very funny. I just... And I should have known this because the subtitle of the book was A Tragedy of Manners. It is a tragedy. I just, I guess... I didn't want to get invested in these characters because even though they're very unlikable characters or they you would think they would be hard to, you do end up liking them. And even though you probably wouldn't want to spend time with them in real life, you, they grow on you. And, and I, I found sort of the whole plot and, and the ending quite cruel. Hmm. I didn't, I didn't want it to end the way it ended, I guess. And that kind of colored the whole book for me when I was done.
1: Hmm. Okay. You gotta be the tiebreaker, Dennis.
2: Um, Unfortunately, I'm
0: going to come down in the middle here. Oh, come uh, on. Well, what a fence sitter. Well, the thing is, okay, I like Patrick DeWitt's writing style. I found the book interesting and entertaining. At the same time, I found it a bit aimless, which I also found in The Sisters Brothers, but I think I enjoyed The Sisters Brothers a little more. There is a lot to, well, there's a lot to chew on, but also at the same time, it just kind of, it's light and easy to dismiss in a lot of ways. That's contradictory. It doesn't really help this discussion much. I thought it was a pretty good book. I enjoyed it. I've read much funnier books. I've read books that were more insightful. I didn't mind reading this book and I would read it again, you know, so it covers a comfortable middle
2: ground for me. Because we've had, you know, an extra month to uh, ruminate over the book. I have recently in the last few days gone back and reread sections of it. And then uh, I felt like I needed to temper what I was going to say, because I think I was going to be quite harsh on the book. And then w- reading these sections, it's some of it's so so lovely to read. Mm-hmm. And now, I mean, not that I've, I'm an expert on Patrick DeWitt now, but having read three of his books, I'm starting to see that he has a particular style. And I think what he likes to kind of do is he likes to subvert genres. Like he is, you know, so you could call the Sisters Brothers a Western but it doesn't read like a Western and there's kind of this incongruity to it. French Exit feels much more paired with like his writing style. Like like you had mentioned P.G. Woodhouse at the beginning and and it felt very much like a P.G. Woodhouse book, but every P.G. Woodhouse book, things wrap up in a positive way. Like they're fun, they're laugh out loud. But they're not tragic. So I feel like the, the tone and the genre matched much better in French Exit and also in The Librarianist. Another one of his strengths, I feel like, are his, his, his ability to really sketch out interesting secondary and tertiary characters. He doesn't have to say a lot about them, but they come alive. Like uh, all the sort are of the weird circle of people that they encounter in Paris. I found them way more interesting than, than Francis and Malcolm, like the, the doctor and the doctor's wine merchant and, mm-hmm. the, uh, and, and then. Like you know the seance scene where they 're all together uh, there for that I mean it was so well written and and so funny and then, but then it had to it had to end the way it did. I, I just felt that was kind of gratuitous i didn 't need to read the last couple chapters honestly but mm. again that 's me
1: I listened to an interview with DeWitt where he said that making the choice for to write Francis committing suicide was very hard for him. But I think it adds like it adds a poignancy to this book that is is missing throughout. And, you know, she's she's leaving Malcolm behind with essentially nothing. He's gonna be forced to figure out how to survive in the world on his own. And I don't I mean I know it's called a tragedy of manners, but that the suicide is it's just like I don't know. It doesn't It doesn't linger. It's not what I think about when I think about this book. I think about the funny bits.
0: It's interesting. Cause I thought the ending was appropriate in the sense that I, I got the sense throughout the book that Frances was depressed through most of her life, that she lived a very unhappy life, really. And everything she did up until the end was just trying to get through it. And at the end, she just didn't see any way through anymore. And she wanted to end things on her terms because that was the type of person she was. She was very much doing things on her own terms and not not just going by what she was supposed to do. So that felt complete in that sense for her character to me. Still dark, but I, I, there's an undercurrent of that throughout the story. Like Malcolm is completely aimless and passive. And in this position, like I don't know how Malcolm gets through life unless
1: he i mean really he's really just really gonna like leech off of susan for the yeah, rest of his life right
0: pretty much right because yeah. he's yeah he's been set up for failure from the beginning you everything started with frank in this book because he was a domineering strong character that francis could match but at the same time it limited a lot of things for her too and it really limited it for malcolm because he wasn't getting love and affection so, like, for me, the characters in the book, there was a, a strong sense of sorrow and melancholy. And I admit this can be affected by my recent personal loss. Uh, I've been reflecting more about mortality and, and things like that. But, but you kind of see it through all the characters, right? All the f- the friends they collected in Paris, they're all the weirdos and outcasts, you know, the found family that Erica would always talk about when we were <laughs> talking about these types of novels when she was on the podcast. People who struggle with the day-to-day of existence, but at least they find each other and help each other make it better. And I don't know, Frances was trying to do that with Malcolm. I'm assuming that that's the main reason she pulled him out of school, because she needed someone to be with and she couldn't stand being around other people anymore. So she took in Malcolm and just stayed with him, the two of them together, but then also crippling Malcolm in the process. This is the, the kind of the lingering thing at the end that, uh, you know, because her plan was to get rid of all the money and then die. But then why didn't she leave anything for Malcolm?
1: <laughs> because he needs to learn how to take care of himself.
0: Yeah, but she never did. I mean, she just ran through We money. don't
1: know her story pre-Frank.
0: Well, they had glimpses of it through the book. Little bits here and there. I don't know. That's the one thing that leaves a, a bit of a sour note in me for the for the character anyway, is just, why didn't she help prepare Malcolm at all for this? So anyways, I I saw all the funny bits, but to me, it was like the type of funny you do when you're trying to carry through something deeply sad.
2: Hmm.
0: Maybe I'm going a little too far into that.
2: (laughs) No, I mean, I think, I feel like uh, Patrick DeWitt, it's almost like he built like a really, really cool, fancy, remarkable sandcastle. But then didn't wait for the waves to take it. He just kicked it over himself at the end. You know, I feel like he put a lot of work into getting us to know Malcolm and Francis, and for at least for me, I started the book by not liking these characters at all, mm-hmm. and then and then by the end, becoming familiar with them, becoming fond and quite liking them, loving them, and then it's like okay, he's got me where he wants me, and then he kills off Francis, and I was like, well. Ah, no, like all this thing you've built up is now gone. And now I'm just kind of like, I'm kind of mad at the book, which is, I know it's absurd to be mad at a book.
1: Oh, I've been mad at some. I've been at books. Books. <laughs> okay, I kind of got
2: mad at this book at the end. Cause I, uh, cause the writing style is very similar to PG Woodhouse. So I was sort of conflating the two and a uh, PG Woodhouse book would never end with the main character, you know, killing themselves. No, no, but different aims. Yeah. And I, and maybe it's my own fault for letting myself get lulled into this kind of sense of enjoying something for a little bit without realizing that the whole aim was probably to, I don't know, kind of shock the reader. I guess. Like, I mean, were you guys shocked? I mean, why are we shocked? She was talking about doing it the whole book, so it wasn't shocking. It was still shocking to me. Like that, it was only one little paragraph. Like the chapter was a whole paragraph, and he he describes it sort of without any sense of irony. It's a very straightforward. This is what she's she's doing, and it's just. Yeah, I don't know. That that really uh, bothered me. I guess
0: hmm. in that sense, it had an emotional impact on you, though. So it did. It's effective in that way.
2: Well done, Patrick DeWitt. You got yeah. me.
0: You made me feel sad, Patrick.
1: <laughs> I had totally forgotten about that part. Um, what? Yeah, everything else eclipses that. Like I said before, I I don't. I mean, it ends with a suicide, but I feel like all the other bits just overshadow it.
0: So what is your the sense that you get from the book overall, like when you look back on it?
1: It's a fun, quirky, smart book. Okay. Yeah.
0: Yeah. Well, that's interesting. All three of us came away with a different sense of it after the book.
2: Mm-hmm. Which, it's quirky and smart. Yeah. And it's fun for 90% of it. <laughs> <laughs>
0: yeah. Oh, and
2: the, there's so much you could say about the
0: characters in this book. Like, Because they really were interesting. What did you guys think of Frank?
1: Well, we don't really see Frank in the present. He's kind of a, a caricature. He's just this bad lawyer who defends, you know, pharmaceutical companies and guns and stuff. So he's really just like an archetypal bad, bad dude.
0: True. Yeah. And then you'd, all you really know about him is that he turned away from his family, more or less, that he stopped paying attention to them. Especially Malcolm felt that. And then he's reincarnated as a cat.
1: Yeah, not very happy about it.
0: No. Which is funny because in the the movie version of it, that cat purrs a lot.
1: Huh. (laughs) Does that cat, how did they show so he's like talking, like communicating with...
0: Oh, uh, like during the seance scenes? Yeah, yeah. Uh, the candle moves in time with the rhythm of his voice. And okay. uh, when he tells him to F off at the end, then the candle just blows out.
1: Okay, so they don't do any weird like CGI stuff with the cat's mouth moving? No, okay? no, no, no. Oh,
2: okay, that's, that's good, crazy. because he I didn't do any say, of say, in movies like that, like, no thanks. Like, <laughs> when we, you know, talking animals, I don't even mind if they're talking or if they're thinking. Like I don't mind if you show an animal, like a cat, sitting there, and then, and then it's you can hear its thoughts. I'm okay with that. Yeah. I, I better not see those lips move. Unless it's you a cartoon?
1: Know? Yeah?
2: A cartoon's okay. Okay. I'm talking about like... <laughs> cartoons um, are a
0: different world.
2: <laughs> yeah. Yeah.
1: You're thinking of a movie in particular, aren't you?
2: Well, I am. I think it's one of those new remakes of um, like a a Benji or something. But the one that really came to mind was a number of years ago. There's a, I think it was called uh, Call of the Wild. The Jack London book was made into a movie with Harrison Ford. Mm. The weird thing is the weird choice the movie makers made was that instead of having, you know, a trained dog on set, they had a dude with like uh, motion capture things all over him on all fours and then they just CGI'd the dog in so it's like I could just see Harrison Ford like alright so I'm going to do this movie uh, so where's the dog oh Mr. Ford there's, there's no dog oh, what the hell do you mean oh, this man over here is going to play the dog he's going to be on all four what the hell kind of movie is this you know <laughs> uh, and so anyway yeah. I love how you just created a scene to <laughs> yeah. explain all of that <laughs> I didn't realize I'd be doing a Harrison Ford impression no yeah.
0: <laughs> no I thought the, the movie they did that part very well uh, the seance scenes were really good
1: As we discussed pre-show, I I watched the trailer and it turned me off so completely because I just thought the characters were so wrongfully cast that I I cannot bring myself to watch it.
0: I I have to say, I thought Michelle Pfeiffer knocked it out of the park. I thought Mm. she did a great job. There were a lot of scenes from the book that I thought made more sense after seeing her performance of them. And she put more nuance into it than I had in my mind when I was reading it.
2: Mm-hmm. So it's so funny because yeah, when I was reading this book, the only actress that I had in mind for this role was Kate Blanchett, uh-huh. because I was thinking I out, think that's of, of a than... Blue Jasmine. <laughs> that I don't know if you saw that mm-hmm. movie where she plays a very similar character to Frances, someone who's uh, married to somebody and then the person turned out to be you know corrupt and then, but she's a very much more likable person, and also. Another book that this kind of reminded me of was uh, Where'd You Go, Bernadette? Yeah. And in the movie version of that, uh, Bernadette is played by a Kate Blanchett. So it's almost <laughs> like those two characters were in my mind when I was reading this book. So so to, to have anyone else but Kate Blanchette play that character would be hard to watch. Although, Dennis, your enjoyment of the film makes I, me think I should probably check it out.
0: I don't think anyone should underestimate Michelle Pfeiffer's acting chops. She can perform and... The whole description of, you know, um, a woman who was stunning in her day and you could still see it. It's like, well, yeah, that's Michelle Pfeiffer. I mean, she seems to be about the right age and just she has that ability to have an edge to her and be intimidating when she needs to be, but also vulnerable. And like she just had a great range in there.
1: I saw a lot of comparisons to uh, Lucille and Buster Bluth. And that is more in like who
0: I was mm. picturing in my mind.
2: Oh,
1: like yeah. not those two actors specifically, but more yeah. of that, that look.
0: Yeah. So you would yeah. have wanted Malcolm to be played by someone looking more doofus than the, yes. uh, I thought that guy did a pretty good kind of vacant. He was, he looked better guy.
1: than, than she did for, for the casting in my mind.
0: Yeah. yeah. It's on Netflix. so You can watch it. Mm. You can see, yeah, mm. mm. If you don't if you don't like the first 20 minutes I or so. I couldn't even
1: watch. Like, the trailer just made me so <laughs> uncomfortable.
0: But uh, Patrick DeWitt wrote that one, too. Yes. So yeah, it, it stays very close to the book. They shifted a couple of scenes around. They did away with, like, a character, too. Like, the, the detective's wine merchant wasn't part of the story. And a few other things got cut a little short because it's a movie. But uh, otherwise, very true to the story. They did not show the uh, a suicide scene at the end. Nice uh, she just kind of walks off that scene where she encountered someone on the street and like why are you out on the street alone well why are you out on the street alone Mm -hmm. you know that one that's kind of where it ends she walks off and then you see small frank following behind her it just kind of ends there
2: I think I would have liked the book to have a similar ending in the movie. If that's just me again, you yeah. know? Well, then you might mm-hmm. like the movie. <laughs> I think, I think would, that would have been a choice I would have made if I was Patrick DeWitt.
1: I'm not Patrick Well, Patrick DeWitt. DeWitt doesn't want to be wishy-washy, Trevor.
2: No, and you know what? No. And yeah. uh, he has to do his thing, and obviously I'm in the minority because, you know, this book is winning awards and is held in high esteem. But I have a question for you guys. Maybe you remember this or not. Do they ever actually sp- explain what happens to Frank like his death, because in the early part of the book, I remember they allude that it was a gruesome death, like they had a closed casket. But I never actually mm. remember if there was actually like a description. I mean, I know there's a scene where the, like, oh. the small Frank is on his body, and and they think that like his spirit goes into him. But was it actually is a, it
1: just because the body sat for several days?
2: I believe
0: that was oh, it okay. because so she p- referred to at one point when she came back, he was all swollen up. Right. So I think that's why it was a closed casket. Okay. So got, it was
2: got, more because Francis left and went off on a ski yeah, weekend I or something. Yeah, I think so. Yeah.
0: yeah. Well, because when they said, you know, why how he had died, they said the doctor said it was like his heart exploded in his chest like a grenade. So it's like he had heart failure. Right. Um, right. Okay. Unless it
1: literally exploded out of his chest.
0: And given that this book is willing to entertain spirits and mediums, uh, could be. Mm-hmm. But I just got the feeling it was like a, a, a serious heart attack.
2: Okay, that makes or, sense. That makes sense. Because I, yeah, I didn't think of it, would, you know, I, like, when I'm thinking gruesome, I'm thinking of, I don't know, like a murder or something, but it wasn't, it was, yeah, it was uh, hard, yeah, hard problems, but then it was because the body was neglected for a little while. Hmm. I did appreciate the subtleties
0: of when they were building the character, like, you know, Francis is immediately this tough, unorthodox, kind of almost grating character in her assertiveness. But then, you know, they point out little things like, yeah, well, they said that she was partying at a ski thing, but it's like, no, that picture was from five years before. And like, you know, they just didn't tell people that. And there were all sorts of stories that went along with that. And she never disputed any of them Mm. so that she got a lot of infamy for that. But it left space for her not to be the nasty character that she seemed like she was right at the start. So I found that interesting. Well done. And Malcolmuth is constant thieving. (laughs) (laughs) Uh I didn't know what to do with Malcolm as a character.
1: He described at one point as like a toddler of a man. You know that I feel like that's very apt.
0: Yeah, yeah. like his whole idea, of like swimming in the pool, was just basically him floating in different positions. He <laughs> liked to be wet. Yeah, <laughs> you know, he leaves for another country and then calls back Susan like weeks later. And is like, did you just expect me to wait for you? Well, yeah. <laughs>
2: I guess there is some hope for him at the end, right? Because he goes into that flower shop. He buys a big bunch of flowers. You know, he's doing something that's maybe spur of the moment, but also of his own initiative. If he is going to, like you were saying before, why did Francis leave him with no money? Well, he has to learn how to live. And maybe, I don't know, is that some kind of half-assed start to his independence, maybe? I don't know.
0: By the end of the book, I'm thinking, Susan really committed hard into him.
1: I mean, she just has terrible taste, right?
0: Yeah, because yeah, yeah. Tom isn't a great catch. Either. Yeah, no, he seemed like. I mean, in his defense, he reunites with his girlfriend. He asks her to marry him. She seems to be on board with that, and then suddenly she wants to fly to Paris for an ex, and
1: he, and he comes with her, and he yeah. comes
0: with her, which yeah. you know, uh, hard to say whether that was a good choice or not. But he's he's trying. And then he gets there, and we can't see what's appealing about Malcolm. Hard to blame him. And all these people are weird. And yet his fiance wants to stay there. So, you know, it's not like we're seeing Tom at his best. But, yeah, Tom, Malcolm, she could probably do better. But it feels like they are going to get together after that, because now Francis isn't in the way anymore.
1: I really liked Madame Renard. I thought um, Mm -hmm. there was something just very very sweet about her. She's almost the foil to Francis. You know, she wears her heart on her sleeve. And um, I just liked her, you know, concocting these fancy cocktails and and meals for everyone assembled. And she really just has very little tact. But I really was quite fond of her.
0: Hmm. Yeah, she definitely lacked social graces. Mm -hmm. But she was so happy to have people to hang out with and to actually be her friends. Like that whole thing about how her husband had died and then she realized she didn't like any of her husband's friends and they Mm -hmm. weren't really her friends to begin with. And so she had basically been alone just with her husband for a long time and then had nobody. I did really enjoy the whole weird group of uh, misfits Mm -hmm. hanging out together. I mean, you know, at the beginning, it's like, oh, she just said goodnight and then snuck back in. <laughs> <laughs>
2: yeah. Yeah, and yeah. if it wasn't for Mademoiselle Renardi, we wouldn't have met any of those weirdos because it was like her doctor, who they call, right, uh, mm-hmm. to come and look after Francis after. Did she injure her hand or it was... Uh, well, Frank, uh, well, little, Frank little Frank Bitter. That's yeah. right, little Frank Bitter. And the, and so the, the, then, of course, then the doctor shows up with his wine merchant, but then... No, he doesn't yet. He shows up with a bottle of wine, but the wine is corked. And he's so embarrassed, mm-hmm. he calls his wine merchant to complain. And then the wine merchant shows up. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, like, I mean, that was all great. It's all great stuff. Mm-hmm. I loved it. Yeah.
1: But also, not really.
2: Well, I don't know. It sounds like he's weakening <laughs> on this.
0: Uh, I think the more he thinks about the book, the more it's getting to
2: it. I, I think the fact that I enjoyed it so much makes me hate it even more. <laughs> <laughs> Man, I hope you don't find a book you really like. <laughs> no, I mean, and that's the thing. It's like, again, I think I said this when we recorded The Sisters Brothers. Patrick DeWitt seems like a nice guy. I've seen him in interviews. Mm-hmm. I want to like him.
1: He's very well-spoken.
2: He's very well-spoken. I feel like we would have a lot in common if we're hanging out, mm-hmm. except if he asked me to be honest with him and look him in the eye and tell him what I thought of. Well, I would just talk about The Librarianist, I guess, <laughs> because that's a book I genuinely mm-hmm. loved. And, See, and
1: that's a book I was pretty mediocre about.
2: Oh, yeah. Yeah.
1: That's but I did love The Sisters Brothers. Oh, yeah, I know. I, I, I did like that one. Yeah. <laughs> but maybe, that's.
2: Des, maybe Des, you can read The Librarianist. You know, <laughs> I'm going to have to now. be I'm... the, uh, be the uh, come down in the mm-hmm. middle. Yeah. I'm curious where I'm going to feel about it since it's
0: usually you two are a little closer on a book. Uh, yeah. 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 But when we diverge, we really diverge. Yeah. Which is good. There's always room for different interpretations and different feelings about a book. And sometimes at different times, too. Yes. I get the sense of his books of being, they meander a lot.
1: Yeah. As you said, yeah, there isn't sure.
0: really a strong plot to this book. It's basically rich widow loses all her money, goes off to Paris, uh, hangs around for a while and then dies. Mm-hmm. There is character development. I mean, it's compressed because it's a short period of time. It sounds, it feels like it's only like a month in total from when they leave. Maybe.
1: It's hard to say. I mean, yeah. isn't the cruise ship voyage at like two weeks?
0: Oh, maybe. Mm-hmm. Yeah, but that passes by in reading time kind of quickly. Yeah. But, but like, say, two months at the outside, the the whole thing takes yeah. over. And then Frances, who shunned social engagements and other people, is like opening up to people she wouldn't have otherwise and making connections that she had resisted for a long time.
2: Yeah, so, I, I was OK with it. Not have not being really plot heavy. I was okay with it being a little meandery because I thought the characters were, were so well drawn, and you wanted to spend time with them. There was almost like I don't know, just watching it like outtakes from a movie with characters that you like. You're like, oh, this is just is more scenes with these people that I want to be around. So I, that part didn't bother me.
0: And I will say that's even a strength of this book. Like uh, I do like good plots, but. This type of story, it was never drudgery reading it. There wasn't any point in the book where I felt like it bogged down and needed to move forward more. It just kind of kept walking along casually, looking at the scenery, describing interesting things. you talking to interesting people, and then you find yourself at the end of the book. And it's like, whoa, what an ending. Uh, It was a very pleasant read.
2: 90% of it was a very pleasant read.
1: (laughs) (laughs) 95. (laughs) 98. I mean, it's one
2: paragraph. Yeah, but that one paragraph really put a Pong, if you will. Can I use the term Pong on here? Put a Pong on the entire book. I'm not sure what Pong means not, in this yeah, concept. like an like odor. Oh, okay.
1: Did you just make that up? Yes, I did. <laughs> okay.
2: okay. That's... <laughs> You've heard of nerd words. How about completely made up words? <laughs> well, it's like that game dictionary they play, which yes. is a delightful scene as well. It is Dude, delightful. So many goddamn delightful scenes in this book. Why did it have to go the way it did? Anyway, I'm, yeah. I'm going to stop harping on that because I've said that. And it's becoming tiresome.
0: I guess it comes to one of the views of the book. Like It depends a bit on how you feel about suicide and about death. and you know, I'm not for it. But, well, you know, I, And I'm one of these people who thinks that people have a right to end their life. Yeah. If they decide that they can't go on, like I, I, I won't judge anyone harshly for going that route, I think is my view on things because life is hard. And so when I read this book, I kind of, I feel for Francis as she's approaching that point and she reaches that point and I feel sad for the people she leaves behind, but I kind of feel like that was where she was and that was, that was her decision. And I just filled her with anger. You know? Yeah. Well, and that type of situation brings up so many emotions, and I won't say anyone's right or wrong to feel any way they feel about it because, you know,
1: I, I mean, she gets to leave on her own terms.
0: Yeah, A and for accent. her character, yeah, and for her character, that kind of had to be that way. Mm-hmm. Like for her to further diminish in her view would have been unbearable for her. It was hard for her to get to the point
2: where she got to. Yeah, I don't know. I guess, you know, a good piece of art elicits strong responses, yes, good and bad. So in that case, you know, maybe the book has uh, succeeded. Well, I think it definitely succeeded because you're mad at it. <laughs>
0: <laughs> but you still appreciate a lot of the elements of it.
2: Exactly. If yeah. someone were to say, is this a bad book? I would say, no, it's a good book. Would I recommend it? No, I would never recommend it. Yeah. If they re- You would not the recommend
1: line- it even like a little bit?
2: No, because I don't like it.
1: You don't like it at all. <laughs> You were um, just like, like five minutes ago, you said you liked it, didn't like 90% you? of it. Yeah. So, <laughs> it's
2: that 10% that spoils it.
1: Like what, what's out of five? What do you give it out of five? Uh, I
2: don't know. I can't, I can't do fives. I know that's... Uh, a letter 10. grade. Uh, and I, uh, I'm just looking at the cover right now. I just don't like the look of it. <laughs> I don't know. Uh, I can't. I, I, I can't. I can't answer on the spot. I can't give it a grade or 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 a out of five.
0: I think we're going to have to say Trevor is conflicted. Yeah. Yeah. Which you know, or ambivalent. You got things you like. You got things
2: you don't like. You, you can't how, balance like, them. Okay. Let, oh, let me put it this way. Let's say you order a pizza, mm-hmm. and it looks like a fantastic pizza. And you're enjoying. You're enjoying the pizza, right? And then you get to the crust. And there is a mouse turd on the crust. Mm-hmm. And you're like, oh my god, I didn't see this at the beginning. Can I recommend that pizza? <laughs> <laughs> okay. So there's a mouse turd at the end of the book. Is what you're saying. Yeah, there's a mouse turd on I a piece believe of pizza. I you're of so
1: offended by one small paragraph uh, I, I that know. you compare it, it, it to a mouse turd.
2: It, it, it hit me hard. and uh, This is the reverse Rebecca moment. <laughs> <laughs>
1: I was also thinking this book is is basically, this book is also basically Gilead with no plot and a death at the end, but.
2: Someone dies in Gilead?
1: Well, he's dying.
2: The main guy? Yeah. He's talking right to the end.
1: But he's like, he's, he will die.
2: We all will die, Tony. Yes.
0: But not all of us in an apartment in Paris. No. (laughs) No. (laughs) It's
2: (laughs) a reverse Rebecca.
0: Yeah. It, uh, for anybody who hasn't heard our Rebecca episode, I went absolutely ape at the last page of the book and just thought it made the whole book. And Trevor's experience here is the opposite, where he liked the whole book up until the end, and then that took it away from him. So
1: a so Rebecca and a reverse Rebecca.
0: Yes. <laughs> yes. Well, now we'll have a Rebecca and a French exit. There we go. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> So we know you don't recommend it. I'm reasonably sure you recommend it. Yes,
1: I love it. And don't listen to anything Trevor said.
0: Yeah, and I will say also, it was a great read and I enjoyed it all the way through and very pleasant, even if it doesn't have a strong plot. Yeah, be
2: aware there's a suicide and some dark elements to the book. And for our listeners who do read, we would love to hear your thoughts on it. See whether you're on Team Trevor or Team Toby (laughs) Slash (laughs) S. Yes, please let us know what you think.
0: With that said, I think we will move on to our next segment. Actually, I don't really...
2: Go ahead. I I just decided I don't want this episode dedicated to me after all. (laughs) Okay, this episode is not dedicated to Trevor. Okay, thanks very much. Okay.
0: Um, So with that said, we'll move on to our next segment. And normally, we call our segment, Can You Tell Me a Book I Would Also Like? But at the end of the one year, beginning of a new year, we instead switch to our Reading Resolutions Uh, Normally, this is the first episode in January. We're a little late, but we are still going to follow up on what our resolutions were for last year and how we did and what our resolutions are for the coming year. So who would like to start?
1: Are we all going to do like our last year's resolution and then I'll do our this year resolution or do we want to do both at the same time?
0: Uh, What do you feel like?
1: I feel like the former.
0: Okay. All right. Yeah, then we'll do that. Do your last year's resolutions, and then we'll do New Year's. Who would like to go first?
1: I can go first. So my 2023 reading resolution was to become an Anne Patchett completist, and I successfully did so. Ah, that's yeah, great. Yeah, thank you. Um, there were two of her early novels, which I had been putting off reading for a long time, and I did read them. That's Taft and the Patron Saint of Liars. She tried to pull one over me, Anne Patchett, and she published a new novel this past year. But I managed to read that one too. So yeah, I have now read everything that Anne Patchett has read.
0: And were you satisfied wrote. with the books?
1: Um, not so much her older stuff, but it's it's interesting to read the older works of an author I love because you know I can see how she's how she's grown and matured and gotten better as as a writer.
2: Mm-hmm. Yeah. And we'll be reading and patch it yes. later on this year, I believe. Mm-hmm. Oh yeah, uh, you know, a couple episodes from now. So, yeah, looking
0: forward to it because yep. Toby's kind of built her up quite a bit. Yeah, yeah. I'm a
1: little worried. <laughs>
2: <laughs> Watch me and Trevor come in with real sour faces. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Will it be a Rebecca or a French accent? <laughs> mm-hmm. uh, so my resolution for 2023 was to finally read a book by Malcolm Gladwell. Mm-hmm. And I can say I was successful, sort of. You can decide whether I was successful or not. As the as the uh, the days and the weeks were ticking towards the end of December, I had not yet read one, and I was only reminded of my resolution when I went to look it up. So, <laughs> but I did manage to get an audiobook version of The Tipping Point mm-hmm. that was abridged. <laughs> <laughs> abridged. So, oh my so again, goodness. I mean, you guys can judge. Does an abridged audiobook? count as reading a book. I think audiobooks are okay. Abridged? Audiobooks, definitely. Mm -hmm. Uh Abridged. How abridged? Like, I don't know because I haven't seen (laughs) the... How how long was the audiobook? It was, I think, four hours.
1: Hmm. That seems pretty abridged. (laughs) Yeah, but most
0: books aren't that big, right? So I'm thinking the full one might have only been like six hours. Yeah. So I still feel like I got the gist of the book. Yeah. And, what did you think? Of well, it?
2: my hot take, because it's like a 23-year-old book now, so 23 years later, uh, you know, I, he's a storyteller, I mm-hmm. feel like, and he's it reminded me of sort of like what, some of my favorite professors at university that would sort of take an idea and take another idea and, and connect the dots but maybe not necessarily discover anything new. Like there was a lot of correlation, but maybe not causation in with the stuff that he was pointing out. It was still very interesting, but I can sort of see how maybe he's sort of been kind of branded as like a guru because I think a lot of like corporate people were, you know, reading and listening to his books and sort of taking things from them as if these were like rules or facts and trying to apply them. And he's sort of gotten this kind of almost like mystical, prophetic reputation, which I I don't know if that's really what he was really trying to go. In fact, throughout the book, he's saying, no, this is not a scientific study, but 30 of my friends did this. And so he comes right out and says in the book a lot of times, but I think a lot of times the stuff that he's been pointing out um, may not necessarily be scientifically proven. I don't know. (laughs) That's my take yeah. on it. I, I feel like I was happy to finally read one, listen to one. I don't think I will maybe read another. I don't know.
1: Yeah, no. a lot of his stuff has been debunked. Okay. Yeah, like his whole 10,000-hour theory and yeah. a bunch of other stuff.
0: Yeah. Yeah. That's yeah. no, important to remember. He a, a, was a
2: journalist, not a scientist. So. Right, exactly. Like he yeah. was in an entertaining... Mm-hmm. Stories, but you're right. Like I, I felt like maybe, maybe some of his theories wouldn't stand the test of time. So it's interesting to hear that maybe they some of them. Oh, haven't. Oh yeah, no, they yeah. haven't.
0: Yeah, yeah. yeah. But uh, it doesn't make it less entertaining, and also it doesn't make it less influential. It still
2: holds a lot yeah. of people's yeah. attention. He spent a lot of time talking about Hush Puppy Shoes from the 1990s and how they may come back. And that was kind of like, okay, enough with the Hush Puppies.
1: Yeah. They didn't choose to abridge that part.
2: No. no. Yeah. yeah, they could have just cut
0: out the stuff yeah. that really didn't pan out. So my resolution from last year was to read more nonfiction, especially science and technology. So it's kind of a recurring gag on the podcast that I almost always just barely manage to finish the books that I'm reading each month. Sometimes on the same day we're recording. So... I'm not the most organized or diligent reader, and I did try reading more nonfiction this past year, and I succeeded in the sense that I started a couple of books, though I have not completed them. I'm still slowly working through them, and I do expect to finish them by the end of this year. But um, two in particular were um, How to Invent Everything, A Survival Guide for the Stranded Time Traveler by Ryan North, which takes the interesting approach of being written as if it is a time travel machine repair guide. But at the first chapter, it says, actually, you can't do anything to repair this machine. You're stuck where you are. And then goes into now that you're stuck in the past, what are the elements of society and culture that you can do to improve your living situation? So basically, it's a guide to the different things that helped build society over time from a science and technology point of view. So he's like, if you're stuck in this particular time, uh, then, you know, you can ferment these grains and you can create beer and that will be a big boon to your society and other technologies along the way. Like, you know, at a certain point, you know, the threshing machine, you can develop this and little jokes like, um, you know, the Pythagorean theorem, they could name it after you now, you know. Uh, So it's a, a fun book, basically talking about the building pieces of society. So that's fun. And the other one I was reading was uh, Doppelganger by Naomi Klein. Naomi Klein, as a political writer, writes about political and social issues. And I remember reading uh, No Logo back in the mid-90s, I think. I found it very influential on my worldview. I haven't read much of her recently. Doppelganger is about a weird situation she essentially found herself in where uh, Naomi Klein became famous in the mid-90s with No Logo. And around the same time, Naomi Wolf became famous for writing The Beauty Myth. There are two women writing about topics that got some attention. And at some point in the, I think around the 2000s or so, Naomi Wolf started writing political stuff and ended up going down the conspiracy rabbit hole and now writes things that uh, are way off the the deep end on the conspiracy scale. And she ends up on all these shows and stuff. And at some point people started conflating Naomi Klein and Naomi Wolf and Klein found herself. She describes a situation where she was in a, a stall in a bathroom and these people came in and they were talking about this awful person, Naomi Klein, and how could she dare say this thing? And she was sitting in the stall thinking, I didn't say that. You know, and eventually she realized it was Naomi Wolf that had said something like that recently. And so she walked out of the bathroom and said, I think that's the wrong Naomi. <laughs> <laughs> and in this book, she's just. Basically going through what it's like to experience this thing where you're being confused with someone else and uh, how it affects your personal identity. And at the same time, she's talking about Naomi Wolf and the conspiracy theories. And so uh, as far as I've gotten into it so far, it's very interesting. Uh, If you like Naomi Klein's writing in general, it's very interesting and insightful. Mm. But, yeah, I have not completed them. So I'm only counting this as a partial completion for my reading resolutions.
1: That book is on my list. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. That story is so fascinating. I know. Yeah.
0: They're both named Naomi. They must be the same person.
1: (laughs) Yeah. I guess like white women are around the same age.
0: Yeah. 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 A lot of reasons you could conflate them. Yeah. But yeah. Yeah.
1: All right. So reading resolution for 2024. I have a lot of FOMO when it comes to books. I get almost anxious and stressed and also sad that there are so many books in the world, so many great books in the world, and I'm never going to get a chance to read all of them. It it makes me really upset. So consequently, I read a good number of books. I mean, not hundreds, but a a good number. And I never reread because why would I spend the time to reread a book when I could read a whole new book? And so consequently, I end up forgetting (laughs) a lot of the books I've read because I'll spend a week reading a book and I'll be like, oh, that was one of the best books I've ever read. And then several years later, I'm like, oh, yeah, I really liked that book. But why? So my reading resolution is to reread a few books this year, some old favorites that I have very little memory of, and just to try to quell that that FOMO a little bit.
0: A worthy goal.
1: Yeah. And unbeknownst to you, too, I've gotten you involved with it because we are reading that Ann Patchett book uh, <laughs> soon. So thank you for indulging me. Yes. Yeah.
0: Well, you had to reread a couple of books for the podcast, huh? No?
1: Yeah. Yeah. French Exit was a reread and um, The Nickel Boys was a reread. I think there were a couple. Oh, The um, the Carol Shields.
2: Mm. Uh, See, yeah. we've been helping you all yeah, along. It's
1: true. It's yeah. true. Yeah. Teamwork. Yeah.
2: Yeah. <laughs> I don't know if this is uh, your guy's experience at home, but I know in my house, I seem to accumulate books that are either given as gifts or other people in the family bring into the house and they're just there. And I don't know what they are. I haven't read them. So my New Year's resolution for 2024 is to read as many books as possible that are already in my house of whatever type they are. And maybe I'll keep a little list and then revisit in a year to see what I've read. And if there have been any really hidden gems, like maybe there's my favorite book in the world that I haven't read yet might just be quietly sitting on my my bookshelf next to a couple of other books. See, that's how I
1: feel about every book in the universe. (laughs) (laughs) It might be my favorite book.
2: Yeah. But if I just limit it to what's in my house, I mean, uh, and I should point out, I I was doing a cleanup of the basement and do you want a book I found down there? The Tipping Point by Malcolm Gladwell. <laughs> so I have a physical copy of it. And I almost feel like, can I actually use last year's resolution to kickstart this? I mean, I haven't read it and mm-hmm. listened to it in a bridge version, but I don't want to revisit it. But I just want to say that it was weird that I had it in my house <laughs> the whole time.
0: That, that is kind of spooky. Yeah. I like that resolution because I've probably got like 30 books in my house that I bought at some time wanting to read them and I still haven't. So, yeah, because bookstores are... Just traps where you buy <laughs> cool-looking books, and you don't always get time.
1: I don't believe in buying books. No, no. I mean, there's the library. I have a small house. I've moved a lot. Books are very heavy. I don't. Yeah. I don't mm. like owning books.
0: Well, I, I can assure you that
2: people do buy books. So.
1: Yeah, yeah, yeah. I know.
2: So <laughs> you do, but do you have a small collection of favorites, or are you? Uh, pretty no, much, if no. If we were to see your. Uh, living areas they'd be the walls would be bare of books there
1: are, I do have books. They're you know, often things that I needed to buy for university classes or like books that yeah, yeah, but yeah. i I generally do not uh, mm. do not like owning books. yeah
0: hmm. well, my resolution for this coming year is that I'd like to read more lighter fare, specifically more comedic and uh, like humorous books. The last couple of years have been kind of challenging, and this past year, I lost my cat at the beginning of the year and my dad at the end of the year. So I could use some laughs. Um, So I mentioned earlier P.G. Wodehouse and uh, Terry Pratchett who are uh, two of the funniest authors I've ever read. I used to read Terry Pratchett on the bus, but I had to stop because I kept laughing out loud and I was feeling embarrassed by uh, other riders of the bus looking at me as I did that. But there's still a bunch of his books I haven't read yet, so I should probably dig into those and other things that are just entertaining. So, um, with our resolutions set for the next year, and tune in next year at the beginning of the year to hear how we did... Uh, but for now, uh, let's jump into Nerd Words
2: for Word Nerds, where we just talk about cool words. Who's got a cool word? I mean, I'm happy to start. Do it. All right. So my word has been field tested by my 14-year-old daughter because it is a, a slang term that apparently was the word of the year for 2023. So when I said the word to her at uh, supper the other day, she just kind of smiled and kind of looked at me like, as if it's a, so it's a word that she's heard and uses. So I think this is a legit word. The word is Riz, R-I-Z-Z. Oh, okay. You're going to have to
0: define it for us. For sure.
2: <laughs> so it does not refer to Anthony Rizzo, the first baseman of the Yankees, or Rizzo the rat from the uh, Muppets, or Rizzo from Greece. Nothing to do with that. But Riz is a shortened form of the word charisma. Ah. So basically the second syllable. The Riz, now I don't, charisma doesn't take that long to say. <laughs> <laughs> but I guess, uh, you know, if you're saying Riz, it says pertain to someone's ability to attract another person through style, charm, and attractiveness. This term is from the middle part of the word. Ch- charisma, I just said that, which is an unusual word formation pattern. Other examples include fridge for refrigerator, where you mm-hmm. take the middle part of a word, and flu for influenza. Mm-hmm. So, like flu, fridge, Riz. Um, yeah. And so, yeah. Uh, You can also use it as a a verb. You can apparently, you can riz up somebody. Hmm. I guess that means like try to charm them. I don't know. I I would assume. Yeah. Oh, to attract, seduce, or chat up a person. It says right here in my notes. So (laughs) that's my word, riz. Well, the kids do love their briefs. They do. Mm -hmm. It won't be long before Audrey starts using uh, airport codes to describe (laughs) cities, which is a pet peeve of mine. (laughs) Why, WG? (laughs)
1: Um, all right, so I came across this word uh, recently, and it just seemed very fitting for this book somehow. And that word is tyromancy, which is a fortune telling practice using cheese. <laughs> <laughs> Um, So I read about this in a Saviour article, um, which we can link to, but Tyromancy was actually first officially mentioned in the second century in the writings of Greek historian and professional diviner Artemidorus of Dalvis, and he was not a fan of Tyromancy. He thought that Tyromancers sullied the work of true diviners and said they were more in league with those who practiced evil forms of divination like dice diviners and necromancers. Tyromancy reached peak popularity in England during the Middle Ages and early modern period, so from about 1500 to 1800. And the country was primarily agrarian at the time, and most families had some sort of livestock that produced milk for cheese. And people used cheese to divine many things, who committed a crime, whether there'd be a good harvest, how a child's life would turn out. However, a typical use for Tyromancy was to determine who you would marry. You'd carve the names of all potential suitors into some Pieces of cheese and wait to see which one molded first. <laughs> <laughs> um, and obviously, tyromancy fell out of fashion at some point, but I, uh, I think it's due for a comeback.
2: Wow! So maybe, hmm. like maybe during the advent of pasteurization, did follow favor? <laughs> yeah,
1: yeah, perhaps. <laughs> well, there's, I guess, other things to use to
2: tell fortunes. It's amazing. Yeah.
0: I know a lot of people who love cheese, and giving them another reason to have more cheese is probably fine by them.
2: Oh, for
1: sure, yeah. Yeah.
2: Seems like a waste of cheese. You know, to carve something and let it go moldy. I'd mean, I'd probably eat the cheese before I found out the answer.
1: I mean there are other ways. You can like break it open and uh, see how if, it crumbles and if feta. You could just crumble the feta and then it has, idea,
2: like tea
0: leaves. Yeah, mm-hmm. if it's
1: veiny like a blue cheese, you can look at the veins. Yeah.
0: You could come up with your own divination system which does involve eating the cheese <laughs> if you like. <laughs> I, I'm not sure that any one system will be more accurate than another, so you might as well choose the most delicious <laughs> option. <laughs> The word I've picked is also a word of the year, since there are a lot of different organizations that pick words of the year. Uh, I forget which one picked this one, but it is in-shittification. I saw
1: that
0: one. Yeah. Yeah. Um, And this is one that was initially described by Cory Doctorow, who we read many years ago on the show. The definition, as described by Wikipedia... Inshittification, also known as platform decay, is the pattern of decreasing quality of online platforms that act as two-sided markets. So that's a way of saying that uh, sometimes you have a website, for example, that comes out and it offers a pretty cool service. Like, hey, maybe you can connect with all your friends and share your pictures and share what you're doing. And then people sign up for it because, hey, that's cool and we want to connect with our friends. And everyone starts using it because it's free and you can do all these neat things with it. So it builds it up and it's really nice. And then the company is like, well, we need to make some money off this. So we'll start advertising. And they offer this to advertisers. And the advertisers are like, all right, we got a great target market. We can target to them. Uh, So we start doing that. And then the users start having a degraded experience because now they're seeing ads all the time. And, of course, the website provider wants to make as much from the ads as possible. So they make it harder to ignore the ads. They put them in more places. They lock out services if you're not using them, et cetera. And then the website will decide, well, you know, those advertisers are getting a pretty good deal here. Uh, we can make more profit off of this. And so they start squeezing the advertisers too and start either raising rates for ads or putting more restrictions on how the ads are distributed. So pretty soon the experience deteriorates for both the user and the advertiser with most of the profit then going to the website. But if it's difficult to switch away from a website, because if you were on Facebook and all your friends and family were on Facebook, it's really hard for you suddenly to decide you're going to go to, um, you know, friendofmine.com instead because your friends aren't there. So there's a high switching cost. But once the service gets bad enough and people start leaving it, then websites and platforms, they can collapse really quickly because once those people that you followed were gone, and you don't have reason to stay anymore and then the things that grate on you about the website increase. We've seen this process happen with a lot of websites. Facebook is currently doing it. Twitter is accelerating it as fast as it can. Um, And other websites from the past, like MySpace, already went through that process and disappeared. Reddit is seemingly trying to do that off and on uh, aggressively, too. So it's a process we see a lot. And I just think the word is very appropriate in shittification. Unfortunately, that's all the time we have for this month. Thank you so much for joining us, dear readers. For next month, we're going to read and discuss Moon of the Turning Leaves by Wabgishik Rice. Ten years have passed since a widespread blackout triggered the rapid collapse of society when the constants of the old world—cell service, landline, satellite, and the internet—disappeared. Ten long years since the steady supply of food and fuel from the South became a thing of the past. When the world goes dark, how will you survive? This is the sequel to Moon of the Crusted Snow, so maybe read that one first if you haven't already. I will be. And we're planning to have Winnipeg Public Library's writer-in-residence, Susie Maloney, join us for the discussion, so don't miss it. Have comments or book suggestions for us? Send us an email. You can find all our contact info at the bottom of the page at wpl-podcast.winnipeg.ca. You can also find all our past episodes there, too. If you haven't already, subscribe to Time to Read on your favorite podcasting service, and maybe leave us a review. Tell your book-loving friends about us, too. And until next time, make sure you find... Time to read. I, know I, wrote, uh, uh,
2: I mean, it's fine. I remember what my resolution was. And I I'm kind of getting into this. I <laughs> 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 <Well, let's
0: laughs> remember that
2: one time I had no notes. Do you remember that? I showed up, and I was like, oh, i have my notes on my desk in the op- in my office." And, <laughs> yeah. So it's good. It's good. Okay.